open up there to Luke chapter 3. As this morning we cover verses 1 through 20, um, learning, hopefully turning, and then yearning uh, for Jesus Christ. We're going to learn from John the Baptist. And one of the things I think we'll kind of come away with, among other things, is that, you know, there's that emphasis to turn from our sins. And then I think when you look at the whole message together, it's the, the yearning for Jesus Christ in our life. And in our study today, we're going to see the setting of John the Baptist. We're going to see the prophecy of John the Baptist. And then we're going to see the preaching or the message of John the Baptist. But we begin reading here in verse 1. It says, Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Luke here gives us a masterpiece of a message. He gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's accurate. He is a historian. It's not just a fairy tale. These are all figures that are etched in history. You can go and you can look at their discoveries in archaeology. And in doing this, he gives us the setting. He gives us the Roman rulers. He even gives us the Jewish rulers. And in that, he would even give us a time frame. William Barclay, who's a a real, real good guy when it comes to history, he said to Luke, the emergence of John the Baptist was one of the hinges on which history turned. So much so is that the case that he dates it in no fewer than six different ways. And he mentions the rulers of the day. We read, first of all, right there in verse 1 of the reign of, it says, Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius was a successor of Augustus, and therefore he was the second of all Roman emperors. As early as AD 11 or maybe 12, Augustus had made him, Tiberius, his colleague in the imperial power, but he didn't really come uh, to be uh, there as the sole emperor until about AD 14, according to history. And so if he started at AD 14, this is now his 15th year of his reign, we find the date being somewhere about A.D. 28 and 29. He mentions right here uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Philip, the tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. And what he mentions is the rulers within the Roman structure. The three dates that Luke gives here are connected with the political organization of Palestine. And so we read first off of Pontius Pilate. How many of you have heard of him? I I think we have if we read the Bible, right? What had happened was after the Jews petitioned for the removal of his predecessor, Archelaus, the Romans installed a procurator of governor in Judea. And this is Pontius Pilate. He was in power from AD 25 until AD 37. What had happened was when King Herod died, they divided the the nation or the the province of Palestine into four sections going to his four sons. Three of them are mentioned here, but one of them got dethroned because the Jews, uh, they petitioned Rome for that. That's the one that Pontius Pilate was then ruling over. We also have here Herod Philip, who ruled over Iturea and Trachonitis from 4 BC to AD 33. 
Um, we've heard probably of Caesarea Philippi. It was named after him. It was built by him. And then we read also here of Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, of whom we don't have a lot of historical information. But here Luke paints a picture of the rulers of Rome, of Palestine, and then he mentions there the rulers of the nation of Israel. Notice again, we read there in verse 2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. And so you look at that, and if you read your Old Testament, you're like, well, why is there two high priests? As a matter of fact, when you look at history, you find that Caiaphas was the son-in-law of Annas. And so how does that work? Because the high priests were supposed to be their position given to them by God through, you know, they inherited it, the father to the son, and it would go on like that. So how did it go over to the son-in-law? And the answer is that things were crazy. It was a Roman decision, and it was an Israeli or a Jewish backsliding. You see, that was the condition, that was the setting from which John would come and burst onto the scene. The high priest was at one and the same time the civil and the religious head of the community. Uh, William Barclay said in the old days, and I would say the biblical days, the office of high priest had been hereditary and it would be for life. But what we see with the coming of the Romans, and I would add with the spiritual decline of the nation of Israel, the office was the object of all kinds of chaos. And so what had happened, you guys, was the result that was between 37 B.C. and A.D. 26, there were no fewer than 28 different high priests. Now, Annas, when we read history, was actually high priest from A.D. 7 until A.D. 14, And so when you look at this now, he was therefore at this time out of office, but he was succeeded by no fewer than four of his sons and Caiaphas, who was his son-in-law. Therefore, although Caiaphas was the reigning high priest, Annas was the power behind the throne. And that's why, if you remember, when Jesus was arrested in John chapter 18, they took him first to who? To Annas and then to Caiaphas. And so in looking at this, you see the setting of the time of John the Baptist. Next, I want to jump down to the prophecy of John the Baptist because look what it says in verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see a little bit of the setting. Things were crazy. Rome had their rulers, the emperor, the tetrarchs, the governors. The Jews had their rulers, the high priests, and things were not right. You see the setting, but then you see the prophecy. And when, when you look at this here in verses 4 and 5, I think Luke quotes out of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. And in doing this, he does a couple of things. Number one, this guy, John. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Well, he's the guy that was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. You see, first of all, in giving this prophecy, he reveals John's validation that this man, this messenger, has scriptural support. The Bible predicted this prophet. And so what should they do? What should we do? We should listen. 
Because God prophesied that this prophet would come. You see, there's a validation in this. There's also a function in this prophecy. Because when you look at this, we see that John's job was to do what? Was to prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough way smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see, he was a courier. Basically, he was a spiritual courier. You see, when a king was going to make a royal visit in those days... Uh, elaborate preparations were made to smooth the highways and to make his approach as direct as possible. And this is what John called upon the people to do. Only it wasn't a matter of repairing literal roads, but of preparing their own hearts to receive Jesus. Uh, One guy said this, when a king proposed to tour part of his dominion in the east, he sent a courier before him to tell the people to prepare the roads. And so John is regarded as the courier of the king. But the preparation on which he insisted was a preparation of heart and life. The king is coming, he said. Mend not your roads, but your lives. You see, there is laid on every one of us the duty to make life fit for the coming of the king. And that's what John was out there doing. He's preparing them. He's, you know, the time is at hand. The Messiah is coming. This is the setting of John. This was the prophecy of John. It offered the validation. It offered the preparation so that when Jesus would come, they would not miss the Messiah. You see these things, and it's so cool, man, how God wants to prepare us even now for his second coming, huh? It's very important that our hearts are right. Because when we look at this, we close today, and I kind of wanted to close with this, the, the message or the preaching of John the Baptist, because this is really where it's at. Let's begin reading again in verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and so that's probably about AD 28 or 29, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Hedrick, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of of sins. Now later we're going to see the personal message. Here we see the general message. And the general message of John was to repent for the remission of sins. Don't you just love the way it says right there, you guys? In verse 2, the word of God came to John. Isn't that cool? William MacDonald mentions the fact that Luke writes of the emperor and the governor and the rulers of the Roman Empire, how Luke even writes of the high priests of Israel, but they were wicked, unscrupulous men in God's eyes. Therefore, when he wanted to speak to men, he bypassed the palace and the synagogue and he sent his message to John, the son of Zacharias, this guy that was out there in the wilderness. You see, in heaven... The famous men are not the politicians. They're not the ones in Hollywood. 
The famous men are the ones that are men with integrity. See, because God, he doesn't look at those things. He doesn't see things the way we do. Because God, he looks where? He looks at the heart, huh? And it says the word of God came to John. You see, and this is so cool. I love that because we know now John's going to give the word of God to the people. But before you can give the word of God to the people, the word of God must come to you, right? And this is the priority of preaching, that the word of God would come to us. It must be God's message. It must be God's word for prophets, pastors, teachers, all Christian communicators. Even if you're just a counselor, make sure it's God's word. Because we're called to simply be distributors of the message of the word of God that has come to us. And we see that throughout the pages of the Bible. We know Moses was this type of messenger. We read in Deuteronomy 4 verse 5. He said, surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me. See, he taught what God told him to teach and nothing else. Paul was this type of pastor as well. We read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. You see, first the word of God has to come to the communicator and then it can go out to the congregation. Paul the Apostle said the same thing in 1 Corinthians fifteen three. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And here we see that the word of God came to John. And this is what he gave to the people. We see not only the mode of the message, but also the message itself. It says right here, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The Greek word for remission refers to release from bondage or imprisonment. It's coupled with forgiveness or pardon of sin. It's letting one go as if the sin had never been committed. It's a remission of the penalty. You know, and ultimately John had a mission of remission. You know, when you think about that, how many of you here, how many of them there need forgiveness, need pardon? I think we all do. I know they all do, right? It sounds very good. I think we all know it's really the greatest need of mankind because the sin is what separates us from God. And we need the forgiveness. We need the pardon of our sin. But in looking at this, it's very important for us to understand that in order to receive remission, John mentions something that's vital. It's a vital stipulation. Notice again what we read in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. You see, remission requires repentance. It really does. If you really want to be forgiven, if you really want to be free, if you really want to know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven, then you really must repent. Not just going to church, not just going forward, not just raising your hand. God can use all those things. But there must be a genuine repentance in our heart. What does it really mean to repent? Well, the dictionary describes repentance as feelings of deep regret or remorse. But that's not the biblical definition. For true repentance is much, much more than regret that you got caught or remorse that you got hurt or even hurt someone else. True repentance is a true turn 
from sin. It's a real will to change. My mindset must be different about sin. It's a rearranging of all my priorities, placing God first. It's a change of my mind, which really describes a change of my heart. I mean, if you've been coming to church and you're the same person that you used to be, you know, you got to be careful, man. Maybe it hasn't really happened. Is there a change in your life? As Spurgeon said, a faith that doesn't change my behavior will never change my destiny. Do you hunger for God? Do you hunger for his word? Do you hunger to spend time in prayer? Do you want to be used by him? Do you have a longing to see the lost be saved? Or is it just a religion? Is it just something that you kind of go through on Sundays? Be careful, man. In order for for us to receive remission, there must be a genuine repentance. This was the message of John the Baptist. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And just in case you're wondering, this was also the message of Jesus. We read in Matthew 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was the message of John the Baptist. This was the message of Jesus. This was the message of the apostles. We read later in Acts 2, 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this they were cut to the heart remember peter had been preaching and they said to peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do and then peter said to them what repent repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins it was a message of john the message of jesus the message of peter the message of paul the apostle he said the same thing in acts seventeen thirty. truly these times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You see, and it's very important for us to understand that. You know, for me as a, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a, as a Christian, as a, as, a, as a servant, as a leader, you know, it's always a difficult thing. And I think I share this with you guys all the time. You know, I don't want to give any Christian a doubt of their salvation. And yet at the same time, I don't want to give any non-Christian a false assurance of their salvation. And so you always have to examine your life. And there always has to be that biblical balance. Repentance is important. D.L. Moody said, Man is born with his face turned away from God. When he truly repents, he is turned right around toward God. He leaves his old life. You see, repentance of our sins and receiving our Savior, the Lord Jesus, makes us right with God. But that repentance must be the real will. It must be a true change in your heart. And it's a place that every person must come to personally and individually. I mean, if you know the Lord, you know you know the Lord, huh? It's true. The Holy Spirit lives inside you and he tells you and he talks to you about this relationship that you have together. It's a wonderful thing. But if you're here today and you're doubting your salvation, you don't know if you're real, then, you know, God says, hey, come to me. This is what it's all about. A.W. Tozer said, God will take nine steps toward us, but he will not take the tenth. He will incline us to repent, but he cannot do our repenting for us. That's for, you know, those that need to come to the Lord and 
And repentance is also something for us as Christians as well. We know it doesn't end on this side of time. You know, we must constantly, honestly examine our lives and repent of our sins. It happens in the beginning unto salvation and it happens all the way through life. It's a process of sanctification. I encourage you, sleep with clean hands. You know, hopefully you can keep those hands clean all day by obedience, but the usual process is to sleep with clean hands, washed clean by repentance. You see, the general message of John the Baptist was a message of repentance. But in verses 7 through 20, we see a personal message. We see his exhortation, his application, his clarification, and then his persecution. We see, first of all, his exhortation. Look what he said, you guys, in verse 7. He said to the multitude that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, multitudes came. There was a a lot of people gathering. And you know, John didn't preach a feel-good message, huh? He didn't tickle anyone's ears. I mean, think about it. Literally, there are thousands, hundreds of people coming to him And he called them offspring of snakes, serpents, worthy of wrath, headed for judgment, unless they really got real with God. (laughs) I mean, he didn't tickle anyone's ears, huh? You see, the Jews of that day, they were under the impression that because they were descendants of Abraham, they were guaranteed a home in heaven. But John said, that's not true. God can raise up sons and daughters of Abraham from the stones and dust of the ground. You know, some people have the false assurance, well, my parents are Christian, that makes me a Christian. And we know that's not true. Uh, Normally we think that, well, I go to church, therefore I'm okay, I'm a good person, I'm okay. No, that's not the way it works. John told them that racial privilege meant nothing, that life, not lineage, was God's standard for righteousness. Now John said the axe, if you can kind of visualize that, it's set to swing. The axe is set to swing and to cut you down. That's what he's telling the people. And it's so cool when you see his boldness. He said, the axe is set to swing and it's ready to cut you down unless you repent and you allow God to do a real work in you and through you, a work that produces the supernatural fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's telling us and you know, he's telling them, man, it's got to be real in your life. God is real. We see his exhortation. We see the application. Look what it says in verse 10. And so the people asked him saying, well, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content 
with your wages. The people came to him. The tax collectors came to him. The soldiers came to him. They came to John and they asked him to give them practical counsel, like what changes need to happen in our lives. And perhaps this is the place that you and I should spend some time in meditation. What changes need to take place in our lives? You know, what would John say if he were here and talking to you? What has Jesus said to you already? Things need to change. You know, we see for everyone it's different because we're all different. And not only are we all different, but we all have different convictions. We all have different callings. Some things are very clear within the pages of Scripture. It's something that applies to all of us. But there's also that personal you know, road that we all travel on. And the Holy Spirit will be the one to tell us the changes that need to take place in our life. Here John speaks of generosity as opposed to greediness and speaking to the people. He mentions honesty as opposed to deception and speaking to the tax collectors. He tells the soldiers not to intimidate, not to manipulate, to stop the lying, to end the constant longing for more and more. And perhaps for some of us, some of those things are you know, very applicable. I mean, you've got two tunas, give one away. You see, the poor of the world, God wants you to reach out to them. And you name it, man, so many things that are applicable to the life. There's a general command to repent, and then there's a personal command to repent of, and then you fill in the line. What's the Lord been ministering to you lately? You see, we read of John's exhortation. We read of his application We see next his clarification because it says in verse 15, Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean it out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations, he preached to the people. You see, we're going to start the ministry of Jesus Christ, Lord willing, next week. And I'm so excited, you guys, just to study the life of Jesus. But before we get there, the Lord kind of lifts up a few people. We've talked about Annas and Simeon and Zacharias and Mary. And now this individual, this incredible individual named John the Baptist. And in looking at his life, I I think there's some learning. You know, you learn about him. You learn these things. But then I think there's the turning where God says, hey, after you study this stuff, I want you to go out there and I want you to spend time with me. And I want to tell you specifics in your life that need to change. And I'm not talking about, you know, not just talking about stop doing the bad things. I'm also talking about starting to do good things, disciplining our lives, you know, more love and just more giving, just different things that God will minister to us personally. But after the learning and then the turning, my my over uh, whelming desire is that there would be a yearning. It would be a, a yearning for Jesus Christ. 
Because we learn from, you know, Zacharias and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and Mary and John. And it's a wonderful thing to learn from their lives. But it's nothing in comparison to longing for Jesus. Because he's the answer, you guys. He is the answer to all of our difficulties, to all of our questions, you know. Um... I was listening to a song on the way in today and, you know, I started crying there in my truck. I'm just so weird, man, but I can hear something and it just kind of triggers, you know, but it was a song by Lincoln Brewster and he's talking in the end about how when his kids get old, he wants them to have God's hand to hold. He's the one that we need. And I'm so excited now to study the life of Christ. You know, they came to John and they're just wondering, is it, are you the one? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? You know, and it's kind of understandable that they thought he was the Christ. And at the same time, it's very, very commendable that John said, absolutely not. I'm just a man. That's all I am. I'm not worthy to loose his sandal strap, John said. You know, I baptize with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with spiritual fire. And he tells him, what a difference. And in looking at this, we learn once again that even the best of men are men at best. That there's an eternal difference between man and the maker of man. huh? And you know, I think it's so cool and I think it's very important for us to really get a good grip on this because what happens sometimes is we don't really, you know, apply this to our life. We exalt a person above God or we look to a person before God and then that person becomes your God and you end up with water <laughs> instead of the Holy Spirit. You end up washed externally but not really washed and empowered internally, spiritually. You end up with only what man can do for you or what man can give for you, you know, content with the crumbs that are carnal instead of what God can give you. God can give you a feast and he'll set you at his table. And that's why it's important for us to really, really look to our Lord. Now, John said, they came to him, you know, are you the one? And, and John said, I'm not the Christ. I'm not. Remember that song by Audio Adrenaline? Never going to be as big as Jesus. Guess you remember that song? Some of you? You know, John really got that song started, I think, man. <laughs> Jesus is the final judge. Jesus is the one that we need. He's the one that baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, you're wondering, what is the fire all about? Well, it might refer to judgment. It probably refers to purity. You know, and that's what we need. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life to sanctify us, to use us, and to give us that victory over sin. You know, here John points to Jesus and he says again, going back to his original message, I just want you to know though that he's coming as judge. In verse 17, we read how one day there will be a great separation between the sheep and the goats, between the saints and the ants, between the wheat and the chaff. One day. We don't see that now. Now there's tares among the wheat. Now there's wolves in sheep's clothing. Now there's chaff in the chairs. But one day God will gather the wheat into his barn and he will take the chaff. And the Bible says, burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
And in looking at the message of John, we see the exhortation, we see the application, we see the clarification. And I hope that we learn and turn and yearn for Christ. You know, in 2011, it's going to be incredible, man. You guys are going to grow. That's my prayer because I am committed more than ever to pray and to teach the word. I am just so excited. Not just an emotional excitement. I believe there's something stirring inside of us. But man, things are going to be different. Because God is he's coming soon. So I think we need to step it up, huh? Don't you? We look around and we see, wow, people are perishing. And a lot of times we're just kind of standing by the sidelines. We close today in verses 19 through 20 with his persecution. Because look what it says. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. I think Luke here kind of gives us a, 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 like a, a little synopsis of the ministry of John. Because we know this didn't take place until later. But Luke here kind of wants to set John and say, hey, learn from his life. Look at this guy, this forerunner of Christ, this courier of the Messiah. Learn from his life. And learn this also, that when you make a stand for righteousness, you will be persecuted. You know, it's likely that John began his ministry about A.D. 29, that he was imprisoned the following year, and that he was beheaded not later than A.D. 32. And so his entire ministry lasted no more than three years, with only about one year out of prison, two years in prison. But what a difference this man made, huh? Later in Luke 7, 28, Jesus would say this of John. Jesus said, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. See, it doesn't take a, a it's got to be a long ministry. No. It's just got to be a true ministry. It's got to be a deep ministry. You know, John was crazy, man. He would eat locusts and wild honey, you know. <laughs> he was out there clothing camel's hair. He was in the wilderness. He was not caught up with the creature comforts of life. He really loved the Lord and he was bold. He didn't back down to anybody that God told him to go up to. And in looking at his message, I think we learn uh, not only from his lips, but also from his life. You know, we learn from John here, you know, think about it, thrown in prison, that when you call sin, sin, when you're not interested in being politically correct, when you have a heart for holiness, when we purge the compromise out of our lives as followers of God, that we will be hated and we will be persecuted. Think about it. John told the ruler of the day, boldly, publicly, you are in violation of the mandates of marriage according to God's holy standard. You're living in sexual sin. What you're doing is not right in God's sight. Think about that. One guy said this, John was a true prophet, an embodied conscience, crying out against sin and calling for spiritual renewal. And so what happens in addition to all the evils that Herod was already guilty of, he added this to his sins. The Bible says, notice again, above all. One day God would get this guy, Herod. You know, we see that John the Baptist was persecuted due to his godliness. And you guys 
we close with this understanding that that is the law of the lowland. That if you want to live for the Lord, you will be hated. You will be criticized. Are you okay with that? You got to be, man. Because the fear of man brings a snare. Right? We read in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, and some of you here are really living the life. And that's why you're going through the tough times that you're going through. Not only will it be, you know, the political ruler of the day, you know, visible, it will be the invisible powers of the day. The demonic oppression will come against you. But if you're there and you're trying to live the life, and again, you're not perfect, but you're proper, then you know what? Don't be discouraged when you go through those hard times. As a matter of fact, be encouraged. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. He says, Rejoice. And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Guys, we go through the hard times because we're trying to live the life. We're trying to be true to the Lord. And that's absolutely okay. As a matter of fact, if you're not being persecuted, then there's probably problems. But in looking at this right here, I really believe, man, and I was just blessed, that God wants us to learn from John the Baptist. God wants us to turn from our sins. And God wants us to yearn for Jesus Christ. You know, if you don't know him today, then may today be the day of salvation. The day of full surrender to the Lord, the Savior. His name is Jesus. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We see the setting of John. It was crazy days there in Rome and Israel. But you stepped in and you sent a prophet, Lord. We see the prophecy of John and how that gives the validation, his preparation. We see also the message of John. The general message, Father, for us, for the world to repent. To turn from our sins and to totally, truly trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And for whatever things that may be going on in our life that's not right or needed to be added, Lord, to our life. Show us by your Holy Spirit the changes of heart that need to take place in the year 2011. Father, we love you. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, they're not a Christian. Maybe they're here for the first time or or the hundredth time, but they know, Lord, by your Spirit, you show who really is yours and and who's not yet, maybe today will be the day of salvation, Lord. I pray that it would be. And just with every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's the most important thing that needs to take place today, more than anything else. Even if you didn't understand a word that I said, please hear me now. That apart from Christ, you will perish. But God has brought you today here to to meet you, to invite you to himself. So that when you die, you'll go to heaven. So that you can have life even now. But you must repent and receive Christ. And if that's you and you want to do that today, 
I encourage you, even now, right where you're at, just to pray this prayer in your heart. You pray it to God. You pray it to Him. You say, Dear Lord, I come to you today and I admit I have sinned. I turn from my sin and today I trust you. I crown you. I make you my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk from this day forward. Life as a Christian, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer in your heart and you really meant it, um, the authority of God's word says that you now belong to him. Uh, We would love to talk with you and just to give you some free material to pray for you. And so afterwards, man, talk to us. Come on up to one of us and and we'll uh, we'll give you a Bible. We'll we'll, uh, just try to give you some follow-up material. For the rest of us here today, I pray that you would yearn for Christ in the year 2011. Um, like never before, right? Because we want more of Him. And so let's all stand for the Lord all the days of our life. God bless you guys.